Hola, yo soy Margarita y estás escuchando Limehouse Podcast. This is Paddy Ashdown and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. What a good name that is. Hi, I'm Tom Brake and this is the Limehouse Podcast. Hello, this is Nick Clegg and you're listening to the Limehouse Podcast. I hope you enjoy it. Because I'm not persuaded by the case for war. This is what positive politics can do. Right, well, welcome back. It's great to see you. I got a little concerned last week. Um, I forgot to show you out at the Limehouse uh, properly, and uh, I, I left you in a cupboard. I'm really sorry about that. I, I, you know, Tom Brake was um, coming in for an interview, and I just got pre you know, I just, oh my God, it's Tom Brake. Let's put you over there. I'm really sorry. And next thing I knew, you know, a bit of damp opened up, the floorboard opened up and you'd, you'd fall into a cupboard. So I'm really sorry. But thanks so much for coming back. It's re- it is good of you, you know. But and, and, and just to make sure I will be going back to the estate agent to get some kind of reduction in the fee that we paid for the Limehouse. But, um, so Tom Brake, we talked uh, about the ensuing uh, crisis in, in Kashmir towards the end of the interview. We talked about Southern Rail. We talked about um, his journey into politics as well. And um, he's a thoroughly lovely bloke. To kick start the show, we've got Bobby Dean and myself talking about the congestion charge in London. Now, whoa, that, is, that sounds boring, doesn't it? But to be honest, nowadays, if, if it's not about the NHS and if it's not about Brexit, then stuff just generally tend to sound quite dull. Um, but congestion charge is actually incredibly important. It's about the environment. It's about your journey to work. It's about people paying um, paying their fair share. So Caroline Pigeon, she's trying to reform what's going on with the current structure of the congestion charge. And yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting little chat. It's only about 10 minutes, but we, we try and cover most of it. And then a bit later on after the Tom break, interview we're going to be talking about some parliamentary by-elections not richmond by-election no we're going to be talking about uh, stoke-on-trent central and then we're going to be talking a little bit about the copeland uh, parliamentary by-election up there the two labor mps that have stood down in, in recent weeks but yeah but fundamentally how have you been you know it's it once again it's been a, a crazy week i mean all the crazies coming from donald trump over there on the other side of the ocean Everybody's calling, shouting at Theresa, screaming at Theresa May. You know, she's got to say this, she's got to do that. I've, I've got to be honest, I feel sorry for her. I feel sorry for anybody, but I do feel sorry for any woman that has to sit in a room with that horror of a human being and put up with, with this, you know, and basically put on a smile and a fake smile. And also, she's kind of got to do a deal. Well, they won't be able to get anything on paper for a couple of years until we leave the European Union. So good luck, Teresa. Good luck with that. My goodness me, it's a it's a knock on the Limehouse door. Who can it who can it be? Oh my Jacob Reese Mogg, my dear old boy, how have you been? What have you been up to? Where have you where have you been? It's so unlike you not to ask precise questions. Oh I'm I'm sorry, I just I needed to be more specific. Gee, I don't know. Um uh, how, how do you feel about Donald Trump. I think this is really a positive. So did you did you get here okay? It's actually quite noticeable how poor some of the roads are. You know what estate agents are like. They say one thing to you and 
then something else is the case all along, eh? I, I broadly agree with you. I... I'm glad you do. I mean, to be honest, it felt like a bit of an impulse to just to just buy it like we did. But the Limehouse is great. Just I don't like being so impulsive. Very impulsive. I suppose it was. Very impulsive. Yeah, it was. Very Im- Yeah, okay. Very Im- Jacob. Very Im- very Im- very Im- very impulsive. Jacob, stop. Look, just talk about American presidents. Who is your favourite American president? Possibly Teddy Roosevelt. Well, that's great. I'm, I'm glad. But do you have maybe a little bit of a bromance for Donald Trump? I think there is a feeling. Are there any feelings there? I think there is a feeling. I thought so, huh? And I wish Mr Trump extremely well. Yeah, and what about Mike, what about Mike Pence? And this is something different. And it may not work. You can't tell at the beginning. Jacob, you know... Yeah. But it's different and I think potentially very exciting. You should go over there, man. Get a job. You'd be great over there. You know you would. That could be very beneficial to the fiscal side of the US. Okay, well, thanks for popping in, Jacob. You know, it's, it's always great to see you. And I guess, I don't know, we'll just see you on the flip side sometime. Uh, and, and look after yourself, Jacob Roo. Jacob Roo Roo. Jacob Reese Mogg. If you wish to call me a Tory Toff, call me a Tory Toff. I'm not calling you that, Jacob. I'm not calling you that. You're too much of a nice guy. It's over to me and Bobby to talk about the London congestion charge. Enjoy it. It's very, very informative. Right, hello. I'm here with the infamous, the famous Bobby Dean. Hello, Will. How are you doing? I'm all right, mate. So, like, we're here today, this evening, to talk about um, the congestion charge and its in its possible replacement, some ideas that are being, um, being met out at the moment. Do you want to fill the Limehouse listeners in? Yeah, so... Um if you're in London, you'll know about the London congestion charge. And this week, uh, Caroline Pigeon, Lib Dem London Assembly member, and some of our colleagues have released a report. It's called London Stalling. It's talking about the fact that this congestion charge still hasn't really solved our congestion charge, uh, our congestion problem yeah. in London. And they're looking at different ways that we might be able to replace it. So this must be something that we really need, right? Yeah, I mean... I, I'm uh, kind of a part-time driver in London. I'm a member of a car club, and I don't need a car every day. But do I do. You sim- a, do you have a bowler hat with a car club? <laughs> Not quite. It's a it's a it's a funny app, and you unlock cars with oh. your phone. It's amazing. What? Okay. But, but yeah, I guess that's one of the problems with the congestion charge as well. It only covers central London, and obviously that's not the only place in London that congestion occurs as well. So some of the recommendations in the report uh, might be able to address that. Um, I'll start off by talking about the kind of smaller changes they're proposing to the congestion charge. One is, if you don't know already, there's a flat rate uh, for a particular zone in central London. I think it's £11.50 a day. Um, But the thing that that doesn't tackle is when there's particular problems at peak times because it's a flat day rate or uh, sort of how long or how much driving you might be doing around that uh, in that zone as well. So a couple of the suggestions for... changing the congestion charge are to you know make it time sensitive so that we can maybe charge people more uh, during those peak hours um, and also maybe charge people that are using the zone for a longer period of time within that as well yeah i mean i'd i'd, I'd love it if not only we charge them a, a bit extra but also if there was a way of monitoring monitoring their exhaust fumes because some of the people that are allowed to drive in the congestion zone uh fine they pay the 11 pound 50 but some of the emissions are absolutely outrageous. I know I'm going off a tangent, but that's just one, something I want to just 
compute if we can just bring that up later perhaps so. yeah definitely and i think this is uh is as much an environmental issue as it is one of just sort of the economic imperative to reduce congestion they, they talk about it costing london billions i don't know how they work out these figures but they do but one thing's for certain is that i know from a cyclist is that slow moving traffic is is more problematic for for passers-by and tons yeah. of environmental stuff as well yeah um but the, the thing that i wanted to pick up on the report actually was the kind of slightly more exciting more innovative solution that they've suggested could be and that's uh that of road pricing Okay, yeah. Yeah, so the idea of road pricing is that instead of just having a zone, we would basically charge people um, per mile according to their actual usage. Um, I think it's quite a radical idea. It's not necessarily a new one. Um, I think it was brought up in the noughties by a new Labour, but then kind of got buried again. But yeah, I mean, what's your first impression as a driver of, of somebody tracking your usage and charging you accordingly? Well, the thing is, I mean, yeah, like un- under New Labour, I think there was there was a culture around Tony Blair about uh, him, snoo- you know, snooping on us and what have you. Nowadays, um, I think, good God, you know, with, with, with Theresa May, I might be even more terrified. But having said that, if I'm just looking at this and trying to be a progressive human being, I'll probably be like, yeah, OK, because I've got to take responsibility. If I really, really care for my city and I really care for my lungs, I'm an asthmatic and, and kids, children's lungs, old people's lungs, whoever. Uh, yeah, OK, go on then. But then if it works, it works. But crikey, I mean, you know, it could be quite weird and creepy at the same time. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think as liberals, yeah, we definitely have a duty here to pick up on the capability of these technologies and that is something we'd need to regulate properly and obviously with things like the snoopers charter going wow. through it's not um it's not encouraging for this government to put the regulations we'd want in place but yeah there would be tracking devices in the car um i think the things in the noughties people were worried about was well if this tracking device is in my car are they going to also track my speeding am i going to get speeding fines the second i go over uh, and things like that but i i'm sure we could regulate against that so that it's yeah. just exclusively used for the car usage i mean just i mean i know really really going off a tangent here but i mean in, in terms of speeding and, and being able to monitor people's speed i think you'd have you know you'd have to be pretty um accurate technology but also why not i mean if you said right over a month we're going to calculate your average speed using some sort of technology um and if we find you you, you, you you're averaging 47 miles an hour in 30 mile an hour zones we're going to find you I don't, i'm god do i sound like a tory for saying that no i think I, it's right you're saying just, you know people need to obey the road laws and that's yeah, probably for good reason speed cameras aren't good enough so uh, actually a lot of people younger drivers in particular are, are, are willingly taking on this now as well you, you might have heard some people get reducing their insurance premiums by putting tracking devices in their car because basically if there was an incident they know how fast you were going and so on so some people are taking this on willing so i do think the appetite for this tracking technology has probably increased since it seemed a bit sort of weird and dystopian 15 years ago yeah um but yeah i mean i'd like to talk up some of the advantages of a road pricing scheme as well we would be able to sort of pin down the people that are using their cars at the worst times in the worst places and charge them more for it and if we charge them more for it that should reduce the number of people that are willing to actually go ahead and do it and those that are paying the premium rates well we can then reinvest that in public transport and encourage yet more people to, to you know to get off the roads and reduce our congestion problem and reduce our environmental problem um i think if we were to do that we'd we'd also need to replace 
other taxation um, on on motor insurance because I think it would get too excessive otherwise. So maybe vehicle exercise duty would have to have to go. I think in the report they talked about that being devolved to London. But then you'd also think about fuel as well because our our drivers going to be charged twice for their car usage if they're also being charged with their sort of fuel taxation and this new sort of road pricing initiative as well. So I think we'd need to look at it a bit more uh, sort of cohesively if we were going to make it work. I understand why there is just this, this, this one flat charge in the congestion zone and we've left it for years because it is it is technology, you know, it, it is based on trying to find the, the correct technology to move this forward without feeling like you're oppressing people or tracking people. But also, we really need to look at, my fundamental thing is that we need to look at rush hour you know and and how the spikes in pollution are extraordinary and also the traffic for people schools and businesses you know like it's insane that we live in the 21st century that we've got this crazy hour and a half two hour period maybe even three hours where and then at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day and no one seems to go right let's figure this out you know if it does mean finding not finding people up the wazoo but you know trying to find a progressive sort of like I don't know what would you would you call it, like a, a, a progressive fine well no it's not even a fine I think it's a it's a charge for a service uh, you know if you want to get on the train at a peak time it costs you a bit more and we try that we do that because we're trying to encourage people that don't have to travel at the peak times to to travel off peak and I think we're kind of having a same attitude towards our car pricing and the thing is it has got worse in London in recent years um, for full number of reasons but you know more people are taking sort of daytime um, deliveries you've kind of got more taxis and more Ubers on the road yeah you've, it's true. You've, you've actually seen road space reduced for good reason I think by increasing number of cycleways and busways and obviously more people in London as well so it's something that does have to be tackled at some point otherwise London will become gridlocked like everyone tears their hair out over rush hour fine but no one ever does anything about it because it's not world war. It's not famine. It's not Brexit. It's not whatever. It's yeah. just getting in my car. And as soon as you're at work, you forget about it. As soon as you get home, you forget about it. But when we get in our cars and never do anything about it, it's it's quite funny. Yeah. I don't, but, I mean, if you look at the similarities with uh, the issues we're having with Southern Rail in South London at the moment, people do get very angry about it. Why? Because it causes you stress. That's, and that's a stress on your, your mental health and your, your whole day. Um, but also it costs you time. And, you know, the classic saying time is money. But time is also family as well. If you've got young mm. kids to get back to and you're not getting back to see them because you're stuck in traffic or you're stuck on the train or whatever it is. These are these are real life issues that we, we need to be care, showing no, care absolutely. about. It's not, it's not just the... Um, the fact you have to listen to the radio for another 20 minutes it's it's more because it has an impact on things you want to do in your life and things you want to do in business and yeah. I, I, we we don't have to we we shouldn't scoff at it no no absolutely it's just it is it is about finding an answer to this though and it is a it's probably going to be about trying to converge all the great minds you know green party whoever you know green yeah. blue red yellow beige who knows but we, we, it is something that is really it's a pressing issue whether whether you take it from from wanting to tear your hair out all the way up to having lung disease I mean, it's like how many people die a year from from the pollution in this city it's like twelve thousand, isn't it it's like lung disease lung yeah. related like pollution related it's pretty extraordinary so. yeah i mean i i can't remember the exact figures but it is shocking every time i see stuff around air pollution in london i i can't believe that we find it tolerable and 
hopefully reports like this will at least create debate. I mean, it's certainly created debate for us on this show. Yes, But mate, others yes. might start considering it as well. It seems like the Mayor's Office hasn't dismissed it out of hand. I think Val Shawcross, who's the member for transport, has sort of said there's some interesting, innovative ideas in there. And let, let, let's see what people think. They weren't ready for it 10 years ago. Maybe, maybe now now's the time for, for something as innovative as as road pricing and in in tackling our congestion problem but also our our environmental one too and making sure that people are kind of paying for their use yeah see i told you it would be great and informative and it was so we're going to delve straight into the tom break interview now i think it's also slightly prudent to mention there are one or two thumps on the table that echo into the microphone this i can only apologize for it was my fault, not Tom's. My fault, not Tom's. Enjoy. You started off um, a little bit like me, I suppose. Um, yeah. Human human rights activist, yeah. right? Protest yeah. and environmental so stuff. Yeah. Is yeah. that where the when did the fire really start for you then? Because that's a question I always obviously ask. Yeah. Well, it, Margaret Thatcher started yeah. the fire. Yeah. Um, and a few, a few environmental issues and issues like Europe. Yeah. So the in nineteen the early nineteen eighties was a much more, I think. Well, let's see what happens with Trump and Brexit. But <laughs> until Trump and Brexit, I think the political scene was fairly anodyne. Whereas the early eighties, it was very extreme with yeah. Thatcherism or uh, Michael Footism, Footism, and there was a huge gap in the centre, which. The Liberals, we did our best to occupy. Does that sound similar? It does. does yes, so it's all gone full, full circle in yeah. thirty years. Yeah. So you were how old when that? When you were when you early twenties. Early twenties. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And was that at a university? Was it you just sort of? Thought? It was. Uh, I wasn't involved at university. I went to Imperial College, which, frankly, apart from studying and drinking um, yeah. and stealing other universities' mascots, didn't really do politics in a okay. big big way. Yeah. Um, so no, it was the last uh, the, the last week that I was nominally still at uni. In fact, uh, the the last week and the the, the general election in eighty three, there, there was a week. So I spent a week campaigning with uh, William Goodhart, who unfortunately has just died, um, who was oh, the can, yeah. candidate in North Kensington, yeah. and got got stuck in from that point onwards. Really, yeah, okay. I've I've been very very keen on on politics, but early early uh, late late teens, early twenties, mm. and then I, I sort of drifted away from it a bit, yeah. and Iraq brought me back in. Yeah, but drifting away. I mean, having a fire inside you for 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 change. Mm. Have you ever had a time when you just thought? I, it's really gone low like you, you know the enthusiasm for politics the, enthusiasm, the whole mechanism has it just driven you to I just can't do this anymore or? well no I've never been at that sort of existential um, threat or departure moment yeah. um, and obviously the, the 2015 general election and the uh, Trump election and the Brexit vote all of that has meant that um, it's been a, a tough political period, but that's never led me to think, well, it's time to bail out and go off and uh, become a director of the V&A or yeah. leader. So, because um, I know you, you and I are, are London fellows. Yeah. You're Carl Shulton, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And um, London Borough you, Sutton. Yeah. You've been there for some time, haven't you? I am the longest-serving Lib Dem member of Parliament. Yeah. 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 So, how, how years. Yeah. What, what have you seen in those years? What was the most marked change? Do you think? 
I mean, are you talking political terms? No, politically, or? personally, you know, anything really. Yeah, well, I, I suppose clearly during that time the party has been through a bit of a roller coaster of um, you know, growing support of the disappointment back in 92 when we thought we were going to make a breakthrough and Neil Kinnock made his famous are you ready speech and fell over on the beach yeah uh, and that uh, didn't didn't work out in 92 but then in 97 we we were on the rise between 97 and 2005 what what are you campaigning most on in your constituency i mean i suppose on the issue of, of uh, well what, what are the big issues well first of all southern clearly is a big issue now that's gone a little bit off the boil one hopes because there now appears to be an agreement between aslef and southern now, how long that will last, who knows, but let's hope it's a, a permanent uh, agreement. And separate, but separate to that, we do still have the RMT who are still striking on the same issue. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, the strike on Monday, as I understand it, is going ahead. Um, and therefore, Southern on Monday expect to only run, I think it's 70% of services. So uh, it is a big issue for me. That's why I've been running a petition now for, for some months, uh, which was delivered to the Prime Minister uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, called the Sack Southern Petition. And that is, I mean, the, the purpose of that is, and, and when I say Sack Southern, I mean Sack Southern and Thameslink because yeah. they are both equally as uh, poorly performing and run by the same company. I mean, I'm not, I'm not just laying the blame at, at Southern's feet because Southern are part of the problem. Uh, Southern, ha- I think their communications with passengers are appalling. Uh, and that's something that has been an issue on the rail network for decades, and I don't understand why they can't resolve it. Uh, they also severely underestimated the number of drivers that they'd need to run the service, even though it was, in effect, the same company that was running it before the new franchise was allocated. So why yeah. they didn't deal, do, deal with that when they were in charge of it before uh, they took over the franchise, that's a question they've got to answer. But Network Rail are also partly to blame. There are so many failures of their... Uh, infrastructure, whether it's track, signalling, uh, things going up in flames, uh, fires by the railway lines, sinkholes appearing under their track. And then, of course, I'm afraid I do blame the unions because the, the Office of Rail and Road, who have looked at the policy that Southern wants to rail out, uh, roll out across the whole of the network, as opposed to a third of the trains that currently use driver-only operated doors, the Office of Rail and Road have said that providing Southern do the things that they say they're doing in terms of technology and so on, uh, that there is not an issue with this uh, driver-only operated doors uh, from a safety point of view. So I don't understand what the purpose of the strike is. And I wonder whether ASLEF backing off and hopefully the RMT backing off is a sign that they realise that they are starting to get flack from passengers as well. Yeah. Because people's lives have been made a misery. The one thing I did want to talk about was the social care grants. I have a broad question. How, how are councils across London coping with that? Because I know that councils can set their own budget to a degree. But how, how are councils, how are you coping with that at the yeah. moment? Fortunately, so far, Sutton Council, so my local council, which is Liberal Democrat and has been since 1986, the longest standing Liberal Democrat council anywhere in the country, been in control, as I say, since uh, 1986, are coping reasonably well. But the scale of the cuts that there has been to the council's budget over the last five years and the scale of the cut that they have yet to enforce, which they have to do, 
uh, over the next five is astonishing. The council's ability to raise the council tax to pay for social care in some respects is welcome. And of course, the, the government's portrayal of this as the government are supplying extra cash, it's of course, it's nothing of the sort. It's actually the, the, the councils that are raising more council tax from council taxpayers who are supplying the extra cash that can be spent on social care. Yeah. So what the government did was allow councils to increase the council tax by 2%. Uh, they have recently changed the rules to say that what they'd originally said was that councils could raise it by 2%, then 2%, then 2%, so after th over three years. What the government then said was actually, if you want to, you can raise it by 3% in year one, 3% in year two, and zero, and you can't raise it in, in, in year three. But all of this is, is more than offset in terms of the overall council budget by the other cuts. Mm -hmm. Sutton, in the year when they're going to be able to raise the council tax by two and a half million, if they raise it by the 3%, by the maximum, two and a half million if they raise it by 3%, but at the same time, in that same financial year, the amount of grant that they get from central government is being cut by 8 million. So, you know, anyone who suggests councils are flash, uh, flush with cash and, and this is going to, to turn around their fortunes is, is seriously uh, misinformed. And the other aspect of this, which is the government have, I guess because they acknowledge that things are so bad, have given a one-off social care grant. The, count, the Sutton Council are um, getting, it's about 750,000. Yeah. But that, in turn, is offset by the fact that that is being paid for by a reduction in the money that the council gets from something called the new homes bonus, which is money where the councils get if they allow new homes to be built in their borough that is being cut by one and a half million. Yes, the government perhaps have some justification in saying that, that the social care budget is going up, but that it is going up by an amount that is dwarfed by the cuts that are, that, that are being imposed on the council's budget overall. Yeah, uh, so and, what are they getting right? I mean, the government must be getting something right in, in, the, uh, in, in councils at all, some, something, surely. The only thing that I think the government are, are getting right is that they they seem to support within certain boundaries the principle that local councils should have more powers to do things, uh, something that I would welcome. But unfortunately, this has always been matched by a significant cut in the amount of money councils have got with which to do the things, that they, the new powers they've been, they've been allocated. And so Sutton will have seen its budget over a, perhaps over a 10-year period cut in half. And as people will know, you know, if you think of your own household income, if you're told it's going to be cut in half, that means that a lot of services that would have been provided before yeah. are simply not there. And often services that uh, perhaps had been provided universally are now uh, much, much more targeted. So far, few people are getting access perhaps to the care that they need, and that applies to social care. Mm. What's the new member surge like? Because I know the mem new member surge has been is, is pretty pretty incredible at the moment for the Lib Dems. How many are you engaging with and, and how many are coming yeah. out and, and helping you? Uh, uh, great numbers, fortunately. And what this has enabled us to do, or what we felt it was necessary to do to some extent, was uh, provide a wider, wider range of, of activities until we got the surge. And the surge came both after the general election result, when people were so unhappy with that, and uh, more recently, 
uh, from the uh, the e-referendum result and to a more limited extent after President Trump or President-elect Trump. And so what we're doing is we're providing more, perhaps more opportunities for members to engage in, in policy making processes and having a, a wider range of social activities to uh, try and ensure that the wide, you know, much larger number of people who are now members are all yeah. involved in things that they want to be involved with. What would be like your sort of, come on, get involved and this is why message? Well, my, uh, my message would be that the, the UK is about to go through, I think, a uh, potentially quite a traumatic period in, in, in terms of uh, what the country is going to look like, what our relationships with other uh, EU countries in particular is going to be like, um, the future of NATO, the, what, what the, the special relationship with the US is going to be like. And if new members believe that they want to uh, be part of a party that is that is open, internationalist in its approach, that, that's tolerant, that is pushing back against uh, some of the uh, you know the violence um, uh, invective that we've seen against uh, EU citizens uh, if they want to join a party that is united on what is the most critical issue of the day uh, then the Liberal Democrats are very definitely the party uh, for them to get involved with and as I as I said a few moments ago uh, very often the members who've joined uh, since uh, for instance the EU referendum have done so because they've got a particular interest in in Europe the European Union and international affairs that is an area where which comes up uh, regularly at our policy uh, at our, our policy debates at conference it's something on which the party often sets up working groups uh, and so that provides an outlet for those members uh, to, to to get involved i was asking um paddy ashdown not so long ago about um any stories he had when he first started knocking on doors he couldn't yeah. remember the first door he knocked on can you remember the first door you knocked on one of my clearest memories, in fact, does uh, earliest memories, political memories, does involve Paddy because uh, I was elected. My first, the first sort of elected position I held was as a councillor in Hackney. Mm-hmm. I was elected in a by-election in 1988, and I invited Paddy to to come and speak at uh, at a meeting, a public meeting in uh, in Hackney Town Hall, and we organised this months in advance. And one thing that we didn't realise at the time, because the date hadn't been set, was that that was the night on which the council was going to set the the, uh, poll tax. Now that was a a big event yeah. uh, for those of you know who, who remember the politics of the 1980s. The poll tax was a huge thing, and the night the local council set the poll tax was the night on which there were demonstrations and riots, certainly uh, in Hackney. So we'd arranged for Paddy to come. Uh, and then a few months later, we found out it was the night the council were going to set the poll tax. And sure enough, the council town hall had been barricaded. So they had put, although it was the Socialist Republic of Hackney, they got a private security firm in with Dobermans who were patrolling inside the uh, the corridors of the town hall. They would put uh, wooden boards up against all the windows to stop them being smashed. And we were holding our meeting on a little hall that was tacked on to the main town hall uh, and we just had a couple of PCs standing on the front door. Didn't take very long for the two or three thousand demonstrators who were uh, sort of clamouring outside the front of the town hall to think well maybe if we come through this uh, little hall we might be able to get through to the council chamber proper. Uh, so they did in fact burst into our meeting and waved placards and shouted and screamed, tried to smash their way through some doors that had been padlocked and they couldn't fortunately. Uh, but Paddy 
being Paddy went off into the crowd and, and spoke to them about, about the poll tax and of course got far more coverage on TV than he would have done had he stayed in our meeting, wow. uh, which had to be aborted anyway. Um, so that's one of my first memories. There is, a, there is a world outside Brexit and we really need to keep our eyes and ears open to that, don't we? Yeah, so I'm the party's foreign affairs spokesman, so I try and keep tabs on, on different conflicts, issues around the world. Kashmir is a long-standing issue, which, uh, as is often the case in parts of the world, uh, has a, a British decision or lack of it um, central to, to the problems that have then ensued. So back in the uh, sort of late 1940s, uh, the UK left Kashmir and left it very much up in the air as to whether it was uh, Indian, Pakistani, Chinese or indeed Kashmiri. And that issue has uh, remained unresolved with the country partitioned into three parts. How on earth can we resolve this uh, in a peaceful way? Because there are continued skirmishes between the Indians and the Pakistanis. There are continued allegations about the Indian army in particular committing human rights abuses, yeah. um, which you know you, the UK as the old colonial power needs to play an important part in resolving. Yeah. Is, is this something that can seriously escalate and become a, an international, well I suppose it's an international crisis now, but I mean is it certainly something we well, need to keep our eye on? Bearing in mind that India and Pakistan are nuclear powers, true, um, true. A, a skirmish involving Indian Pakistani troops is always something to be a little bit wary of yeah and the Chinese of course are in uh, occupying part of it as well so you have quite a an explosive cocktail potentially so soft power is what we what is required now I suppose soft power is is required really to get the Indian and Pakistani governments together try and find a way that will allow the Kashmiri people to move forward towards perhaps uh, autonomy or, or independence but I think the challenge is that even if they were granted their independence, if at any point in the future uh, they were to seek to align themselves either with India or Pakistan, mm -hmm. uh, the other country is going to object, I suspect, quite forcefully to that, yeah. uh, in that they won't want to see to be seen to be losing territory to the other the other country. So there's a there's an issue there about how you provide or independence or autonomy uh, without perhaps the potential for the problem to escalate dramatically if at some point that uh, uh, independent or autonomous region might decide to align itself with one or other uh, of India yeah. or Pakistan. Hello, welcome back. Uh, yeah, a fantastic man, very knowledgeable and uh, cares deeply about, you know, not only the world at large, because he's the foreign affairs spokesperson but also his community 30 years 30 years he would have been an MP that's something so yeah we're going to move on to the parliamentary uh, by-elections happening up in Copeland uh, and down in Stoke-on-Trent Central as well it, it's going to be an interesting time I think there you know you've got like two Labour MPs standing down under a Corbyn um, leadership I'm just going to leave it to Bobby to pick it up and uh, I will see you in but a few moments yeah, so obviously we've got two uh, Labour seats up for grabs, um, both for similar reasons, actually. And I think that's the thing I want to touch on. So Jamie Reid's um, resigned to take a job in the nuclear power industry and uh, Tristan Hunt has taken on the job of being director at Victoria and Albert Museum. And there's been some debate around this. I'm not quite sure where I stand, but I've, I've got an inkling. It, something doesn't feel quite right about just being able to walk away from the people that elected you for another job. Something tells me that maybe you should be waiting till the end of your term 
serve it out as you, as you kind of like you know asked your community to do yeah um, before considering other job opportunities i don't know how do you feel about this well I, I mean like when i first heard about it as always a breaking news thing i always sort of take a little bit of time to sort of think what does that actually what's a full story behind that what does it mean uh he's a human being there's some health issue but then when you realize that he's just tristan hunt for example is just he's stepping down he fought the bylet he's sorry he fought the referendum in, in stoke and obviously um that didn't go so well um, and you know can't blame him for that but then you know six or seven months later to just do another sort of David Cameron-esque turn your back and run it's not on you know that it's like you said you know you, I for me if I was an MP you're married to your constituents you don't you know there's there's procedures to, to leaving I think it's absolutely ridiculous to just say I mean you know it's ridiculous but at the same time I'm not surprised Jeremy Corbyn you know, could I could I be in a party? Could I be an MP? I don't know. With with him as my leader, I would find that very difficult. But there's another option there, isn't there, for him? I mean, Tristan Hunt, if he truly cared about his community that much in is it, what, Stoke-on-Trent Central yeah, um, and, you know, lobbied for all of their votes because he cared about delivering for them. And previously he thought the best route to doing that was via Labour Party, so that's why he got elected as a Labour MP. He could have decided now to just resign his Labour Party membership and say, look, I'm going to see out the rest of my term as an independent, sticking up for you like I asked asked you to yeah. um, select me to do. And I, I will do that to the end. And then if he wants to line himself up another job in the VNA Museum, good luck to him. That's that's perfectly fine. But so it does sit badly with me that he's kind of asked all these thousands of people to put their faith in him and... And then he's kind of walked away prematurely in my book. I I, un, I understand where he's coming from, but at the same time, I just want to... I, I, I want to go, mate, just like you said, just stand as an independent. If you're really... You're really hard, if your heart is political and you really care for your people, let's not, let's not go down to London and get a swanky job because that just gives politics a really bad name and it's got a pretty bad name at the moment. You know, and then you've got the guy up in Copeland. I forget, I've forgotten his name. It's Jamie. Jamie Reed, is it? Okay, he's he, a Labour a Labour MP. Want he stepped down for a job at the Hatfield nuclear power plant. I get it to a degree, but at the same time, probably about ten percent of me is just like, okay, yeah, fair play. You know, we want to. He wants a change of career. You know, I mean, it's fine. You know, he's done. He's served his time. No, you're well, representing people. Yes, yeah, I mean that's the point. He hasn't served his time. You know, he's made a. He's made a commitment to the end of this parliament, however long that is, to to serve that community, and I just think you should you should see that out, regardless of the the party that you got elected with. You know, see it out on on your own personal mandate. But by all means, go into other jobs after politics. I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be a job for life. I think I personally, you know, if I got that, that'd be the job that I want until I was gone from this world. I think yeah. it's such an honour that. To, and to be able to be involved in the decisions that affect the community I'm in is yeah. just the ultimate dream for me. There's not a job in the world that that could tempt me away from that, I don't think. Um, but for others, I accept that some of them may not have seen it as their last job. And mm. that's perfectly fine. But I just think step down at the right moment. I think if they're thinking that this, is, this, this isn't the job for them for the foreseeable future and they've got into to being an MP, then they have absolutely no understanding all there there's no understanding of what the job entails and also there's no there's no commitment in their mind long term really really taking it on when when they knew 
when they went for the job in the first place, which is deeply concerning. But I also understand that, you know, that it, it, there are people that you can say you could respect Jeremy Corbyn, uh, Tony Benn for being... I mean, can you, I can never imagine Tony Benn or Je- even Jeremy Corbyn, you know, love him or hate him, turning around one day and going, no, I'm going to take a job at the uh, V&A Museum. Thanks, chaps. He he would probably genuinely chuck himself in front of a train rather than do that. Yeah. You know? And, and I think that's to be respected, his level of commitment. People like Tristan Hunt are just... They're they're like not they're like fluffy career politicians. They're fluffy little throwaways, you know. Can you imagine if if one of our Liberal Democrat MPs said, "No, I'm going to go and take a job working for P and O," yeah, instead of if, this. If, if they did it at the end of their term, if they said, "I'm not standing next time round. I've had my time as an MP." Fair enough. I mean, there's a lot of pressures that come with being an MP. I mean, particularly if you're an MP outside of London and you're away from your family for long periods of time, it's not a glamorous job. And I can, I can imagine why somebody might say, do you know what? At the end of this time, I'm not going to run again. I'm yeah. going to look to do something else. Completely fine. Got no problem with that. Whether that's the V&A Museum or whether it's a P&O or a nuclear power plant, do what you want after that. That's fine. I just think if you've made a promise to the electorate that you're going to serve them for the course of the parliament, you should live up to that at least till, 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 the, till the end of that period, um, irregardless of what's going on yeah. in your party. And so, I mean, it does then obviously bring about the fact that we've got a, a by-election uh, mm-hmm. A parliamentary by-election. Uh, Paul Nuttall standing in Stoke, uh, Stoke, uh, Stoke-on-Trent Central, yeah. and and it's going to be. I mean, I predict. Obviously, it's not a massive prediction. UKIP will get it. Having said that, it was it going to be? It's going to be between UKIP and Tories, and we'll probably come in third, and Labour will probably be decimated. I mean, if Labour do get decimated here, that's a big, big news story. I mean, I think I think it might be closer than people think. Um, Obviously, we don't want to go into the finer details of Brexit here because we could talk about it for another another seven days, probably. Yeah. But I do think it's going to be a big test of what Labour's position is on Brexit, if you can call it a position. Yeah. Um, they are trying to... Is a piece the right word? Both sides of the argument at the moment. I think they're ending up being the party of the 0% uh, at the moment. Yeah. And, um, and how that goes down in a place like Stoke, we'll have to see. I think UKIP are going to run it very close. It's a big test for them as well. Yeah. Um, they've put Paul Nuttall in it, so I presume they feel like they've got a good chance. Um, but I wouldn't be too quick to dismiss UKIP if they fail to take the seat, because we do that quite often. Like you, we say, "Oh, this is UKIP's big test," and then yeah. they and then, then they don't quite make it. Like you know, Nigel Farage not getting in last time and yeah. things like that. Like it's not going to be the end of UKIP if Paul Nuttall doesn't get it. Um, it'll be a blow to them. They'll be upset about it. But there's just too many people that are dissatisfied with the main parties at the moment. Yeah, no, I, I think that what we're, what we're seeing now is uh, basically the development of UKIP and, and the Liberal Democrats being the, the two parties of basically clear clear vision. Labour's position is not clear. And I think they've completely misjudged this. They think they can sort of triangulate round the issue again. They've got lots of Remainers. They've got lots of Leavers within their party at the moment. I don't think they've picked up yet just how just how transformational this vote has been to our country's politics and what you said there about UKIP picking up votes on one side Lib Dems on the other I wouldn't be surprised if this is the start of the end for Labour it does happen it happened to the Liberal Party obviously at the turn of the 20th century it it does happen that parties kind of lose their purpose and cease to be uh, the dominant force that they once were. It happened to the Liberals at the turn of the 20th century. I sense right now that if Labour continue down the path they're in, they could well find themselves 
out of the picture quite dramatically uh, by the next election. But I just think it's, you know, I, I do think it's really important to remember that there are people out there that this must be desperately hard for to be in, in you know, in, in a Labour Party or, or a member when you know your heart of hearts that half your party, if not more, just want rid of your leader. And he's mad hand in hand like marriage to Theresa May and her hard Brexit, you know? Yeah, I, I just think you've got to look at the symptoms and look at what's happened in the past. So we had these symptoms for a while in Scotland, actually. But, um, Scottish Labour supporters were very dissatisfied with Labour for some time. And the, those symptoms were not picked up and addressed. And then you saw a party like SNP sweep across the whole country and kind of basically end Labour's long reign in Scotland. We're now seeing those same symptoms occur in sort of at least the north of England. And maybe to some extent in the Remainer um, areas of uh, Labour as well for for the Lib Dems to take advantage of. And if they don't address it, then we could see something happen as dramatically and quickly as we saw in Scotland, Mm. in the north of England and in the sort of pro-Remain constituencies that Labour currently hold uh, to the the benefit of the Liberal Democrats. So they, they do have to be careful. But then again... That is a massive opportunity for us. And I, I would say there, there is another party that is a home for you. And I, I think there is a lot of Labour MPs, let alone members and let alone supporters, that are starting to reconsider their, their position in the party now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can see it's an exciting time, you know. I, I really do. I mean, everybody knows it's an exciting time because we're sat here doing a podcast on it and we, we've been motivated enough because of Brexit and, and the malaise of, of British politics and the you know ensuing crap that's going on. But I just think, I mean, I asked this Paddy Ashdown the other day if it's realistic to ex- to expect uh, Labour MPs to join our party. I don't think that's going to happen. He said that you know we, we've got to we've got to expect and hope that people, the the, the grassroots, the people are going to do this. They're they're going to say, all right then, Labour aren't going to be in opposition. We need someone who is, and we don't we don't want someone like Paul Nuttall. We don't want that because that's we've, they've already got that in the US. You know, we don't want yeah. that here. I think I think it's a big move for a Labour MP to switch parties. I mean, even in the eighties, when there was a big breakaway from Labour, and they eventually joined uh, to become Liberal Democrats, it started off with a breakaway to set up a new party, the Social Democratic Party, that eventually went in an alliance with the Liberals and then became the Liberal Democrats. It wasn't as direct as that, and I can't imagine today there being anything as direct as that again, like a direct affection to the Liberal Democrats. But what we will see, and what we're already seeing, is lots of Labour-minded voters switching to the Liberal Democrats, lots of Labour members ditching their membership. I mean, we see it on Twitter and on Facebook all the time, being the Lib Dem circles, people cutting up their Labour Party membership, posting a picture of it and saying, I've joined the, the Lib Dems. Now, if that's happening at that level, that means there will also probably be candidates that, you know, maybe are not MPs at the moment, but then decide, you know competent people that are ready to lead their communities they're deeply embedded within it they thought Labour was the home for them they're now thinking it's Liberal Democrats and if it's in an area that also has enough people that are willing to listen to that we're going to gain Liberal Democrat MPs that way from mm. Labour it's, it's a big decision you know people talk about Chucka Romani and stuff like that I, I can't see no that way. kind of direct defection happening but the defections are already happening at a different level yeah. and they, they will be eventually to our benefit if it carries on the way it is I think it's yeah it's appealing to people's minds that are developing politically you know they, they haven't haven't they haven't settled completely on, on one side of the fence they're still 
you know, say like, you know, I don't know, 17, 18, what, I don't know, you could be in your 50s and still not be completely decided. Put on the Lib Dem jacket, I don't know. It is waterproof. Yeah. And warm. I mean, instead of mindfulness, just think about the Liberal Democrats finding oh. I'm sure that won't stress you out at all, will oh, it? Blimey. Good. <laughs> yeah, the, Tim Tim Farron mind, mindfulness course. <laughs> <laughs> There's a new idea. We'll get. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we've got a we've got a subgroup of podcasts coming out shortly. It's going to yeah. be short ten minute sessions. On <laughs> <laughs> Liberal Democrat mindfulness. Yeah. No, I don't think that's what the country's asking for. But no, you do make a good point. That more and more people will keep considering our bite. I think we broke eighty thousand members this week. Yeah. Um, and yeah. Yeah, we don't want this podcast to be a complete sign up and uh, get involved but you know if you are considering it just consider it some more because yeah I, I think a lot of other people are too i think for a long long time people only wanted to engage with single issues because that's a lot purer to do that right you can pick the things you're passionate about and you can demand the maximum outcome for that so if you care about green issues be an environmental campaigner and say i want this maximum outcome and none of the parties are doing good enough on this and for women's rights and for whatever you're interested in the point of a political party is to try and take all that stuff together recognize how it interacts with each other and and come up with the best solution and that means almost inevitably there's going to be bits and pieces of things that political parties do that you don't agree with and the best way for you to change that is to get involved in that party and try and change their direction on that particular issue. If you join a political party, you are not signing up to everything it does. You are signing up to the best vehicle you can see out of the ones that are available on the drive to get you where you want to go. So if anybody's not joined it because they're like, well, actually, you know what? I really don't agree with that. I really don't agree with that. Forget about that. Concentrate on things you do agree on. Because um, if there's enough of them, you should be a part of that movement too. So I hope you've enjoyed this week. Thanks to Tom Brake um, himself and, and his staff. Um, I think also a shout out is, is, in, is in order for everyone who sent in really lovely uh, emails and uh, a couple of people who've written really nice reviews on the, on the show on iTunes. If you feel like doing that, it does help one hell of a lot. So please feel free to go there and do it. Um, obviously, we're also available on SoundCloud. We're on Twitter as well. I've been, I've been enjoying some of the chat on, on Twitter this week. So that's Limehouse Pod on Twitter, at Limehouse Pod. And then obviously we're on Facebook. And uh, yeah, just do what you can. Do what you can to spread the love. And uh, yeah, obviously it's, um, it's exciting to know that we've got other um, guests coming on the show. I've got Norman Lamb lined up and... Um, uh, Greg Mulholland is obviously going to come in, and um, yeah, yeah, and I've got John, Jonathan Bartlett, Bartley, Jonathan Bartlett, Jonathan Bartley from the Green Party coming in. So he's the um, co-leader there with with Caroline Lucas, and we're gonna we're gonna talk all things green, and uh, all things green and wonderful. So I'm I'm pretty excited about that, and and I hope you are too. So until next week, chin up. Keep going. It's all right. And, it, and everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be great, folks. Everything's going to be great. It's just going to be great, you know. You're just going to trust me on this one, okay? And, and, if, and if it all goes wrong, then it means... <laughs>